I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Tell Me The Score. Today I'm joined by composer, cellist and Deutsche Grammophon artist Peter Gregson. We've known each other as musicians for, for a long time, but we bonded really during lockdown when COVID meant that the big studios closed their doors. We, we both have studios at home, which meant that we could collaborate on projects, both of Peter's own and other things for, for film and TV composers. And we both share an interest in the technical side of recording, in, in the sense that the technology is an extension of our own instruments, really, a, a way to extend the possibilities for ourselves as musicians. That's something that comes up a lot in our, in our conversation. Uh, we also talk about the amazing projects that he's worked on and his forthcoming album, Quartets 2 and 3, which is now out. There's a link to it in the show notes, so please do have a good listen to that. We, we met at Air Studios in London, where Peter has a writing room and where I spend a lot of my working life. I began by asking him whether there was much music in his childhood. Yes, there was. My mum is a, was a clarinetist and there's always lots of music in the house. Um, she used to play still pop. I don't know why I'm talking in the past tense. Uh, she plays the piano a lot, and we've got this lovely front room with a big piano in it. And um, yeah, my sort of early music memories are her playing this running music, and my brother and myself kind of doing laps around this room. Because um, your brother John is also is yeah, he's also a guitarist, a very gifted guitarist. Yes, as well. that's right. Um, but yeah, that would probably be my earliest. Yeah. kind of direct musical memory. And so were you, were you pushed into it or did you just, was it just the thing that happened in the house? No, uh, so my, my dad would self-describe as, um, you know, he plays the CD player. He's a, right. he's, um, not, not a musician, but he's, he's got an amazing knowledge of music and an absolute sort of passion for it. And is very supportive of everything we do and, um, and so on. But uh, yeah, we... We weren't pushed into to playing anything. I, I took an interest in the cello. I think we went to a like a children's concert, one of these the RSNO, you know, the Scottish National Orchestra, um, children's concerts, and I liked the cello case. You know, the, what I now know to be the old Stevenson uh, flight case, the kind of the one yeah, with yeah. all the weird angles, which also happens to be the one that was in um, uh, the Bond film, where he skis down the, the, yes, the slopes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I, I now have one of those cases, which is yeah. which is great. Um, but he's still making them, isn't he? He does, yeah. Alan, Alan Stevenson yeah. in Norwich. How lovely. Yeah, um, yeah. The other great Alan from Norwich. But it's often a, weird, a little thing like that that gets you into something like just kind of liking the shape of a case or thinking that something yeah. looks cool. Or, yeah, and it yeah. kind of piques your curiosity. And um, and funny enough, you know that the string shop. There's one here and has stringers. Yeah. Um, so Maureen Morrison, or Maureen Stringer, as her maiden name was, was my first cello teacher up in Edinburgh. And she, any time I see her, which is fairly frequently actually, she remind, likes to remind me that um, I went in and they said, oh, well, I was quite small, as a, I grew later. <laughs> so I started when I was four. I said, oh, well, we've got this basically a full-size viola. Uh, you know, would you like to, to try that? So I sat down, this bike was put out, and sat in the chair, and I apparently 
turned to her and said in the most precocious kind of little way, I said, we'll need a bow. <laughs> <laughs> Which has never let me live down. <laughs> I love it. She actually taught yeah, you Yeah, she well. taught me. Um, Amazing. So, yeah, that was, I think that was before she had the shop, but she had this kind of collection of it. She, she was this kind of the grand dame of, of, you know, Edinburgh string instrument. She, was, she used to be in the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, and I think she sort of amassed or inherited a collection of instruments from these two sisters, the Waddle sisters, who, who ran the Waddle School of Strings in, in Edinburgh. And then I think she kind of, you know, ducked and dived into sort of, she, she stored these instruments and would, would let people try them or, or whatever it was. And so did she have a big class of students? Were you aware of other kids? Or? Well, my memory is that initially the lessons were in her house on a Saturday morning. And then, yes, there would be someone before you or someone after you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's, you know, it's a little bit like those sort of old films and it's like the scene omitted kind of black place card holder. I sort of don't really remember the, the function of the, the first yeah. couple of years of it. And then um, I think Maureen stopped teaching and I, I then had this, this wonderful teacher called Pat Hare from then until forever. Yeah. And um, yeah, she's taught sort of everyone that's, that was there and moved down here, you know, yeah, she's, yeah. she was great. And, and do you remember when you first thought that you would like to do that for a living? Has that ever been a, been a conscious thought? I'm still kind thought. of coming to terms with it. I think, I think, I, I don't think I ever thought this is what I want to do for a living. I just never thought there was anything I loved doing more. If you know what I mean, you know, there was nothing, that, yes. I don't mean that in a kind of passive or, or dismissive way. I think I, I just sort of thought, oh, I love doing this. And this ticks all the, you know, at scale, oh, you get to travel, you get to meet people, you get to do things, it's interesting, it's no two days are the same. Um, and that, that was always very appealing to me. And have you ever felt the need to decide between composition and cello? Perhaps it's worth talking about when you started to write things. Do you know, do you yeah, remember when you... I do. I mean, you know, when I was, I was at a sort of quite academic school and, and you know, so um, music was fantastically well taught, the kind of theory, academic, harmony all that stuff, there was a fabulous choir and all these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, part of GCSE and A-level music, you have to do composition, and I always enjoyed that. And I was in the, the National Youth Orchestra and they had a composition course on it at the same time. And I kind of dipped my toe in and out of that and I was always interested in it. But, you know, you mentioned John, my, my brother, and, and when he was, I don't know, about 12, 13, he got interested in playing the guitar, having been a really gifted saxophonist, actually. That was his sort of main thing. Um, but he got, we got into, he got into the guitar and uh, there were all these pedals lying around. It was like, well, I, there was always this sort of disconnect between, you know, the, the cello, which I loved, and the music that I loved. And then there was all this other music in the other side of your world. You know, and there was, you know, being kind of 12, 13, 14, it's not necessarily the coolest thing you can do, sit and learn a Shostakovich sonata, you know, and, and I think the skills that we had, I, I always had this sort of push-pull between, oh, I know how to do that, I can play along with that, but you sit there and play like, you know, Toxic by Britney Spears, <laughs> da, 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 and it starts to sound ridiculous. Um, what I've always loved about music is it's a, it, it should be a transferable skill, but we kind of silo it into, you know, I play the classical cello, therefore 
that stops at this point or it starts here and goes to there. Where I've always loved the idea that actually the the kind of wealth of knowledge that we amass by having this kind of classical education means that you don't need luck or you don't need um, you know someone drilling a, a song into you to learn it by ear or to forget the chorus and you, you have to kind of you know pick it back up again you, you can there's a transferability there that you can sort of interact and work with people in a much more ironically much more organic way than someone who's necessarily learnt it wrote you know if you actually understand the building blocks you can kind of build anything is, is, is my sort of belief of it but my brother always had these guitar pedals and things at home and I, I thought oh that'd be quite good fun I wonder what that would sound like joining the two together and funnily enough there isn't very much music for cello or electric cello or cello and electronics or there certainly wasn't in the late 90s and I did I went on the Oxford cello school course one summer and I met a guy called Philip Shepherd who was who Phil was uh, teaching on it and and I said that to him and he he was doing a lot of contemporary stuff and, and stuff with electronics and and he said to me, I think I was 13, and I vividly remember it, um, and he said, well, you know, if, if there's music that you want to exist that doesn't exist, you should go and write it. And I was like, oh, like, simple as that. And not, not only is that true, but that is also, that's about the most Philip Shepherd thing. It is, absolutely. Like, it's like if, peak Phil. If it doesn't exist, do it. Um, anyway, so we kept in touch, and anyway, fast forward, I then moved to London to the Royal Academy to study with him. So we sort of always kept in touch, and... and um, but yeah, it, it was, it was, I think also at that age and stage in, you know, a lot of the kind of classical cello world learning is, oh, well, you've got these studies and you've got these concerti or sonatas or whatever. And it's, it's quite permission based, you know, you, you, you learn pieces and he's like, oh, well, you can play these now and therefore you can do this. And da, da, da. so when Phil said, oh, well, you, you can go and do that. It's like, oh, yes, actually, you're right, I can. That's, that's such a good point, actually, about, about the, way we're, the way we're taught and the way we learn, I think, and the, and the stages you go through. Once you've finished that book of studies, you're allowed yeah. to do the next one. And it's, yeah. you, you're not quite allowed to reach to the top shelf yeah. until, you know, until permission is granted. I, I remember there being this real kind of jarring moment. Um, I, was doing, I think it was... Kreutzmacher, cello studies. <laughs> They've always got horrendous names. Brilliant names. <laughs> they're actually quite good, but there are two hefts of them. Right. <laughs> two books of them. And um, I was asked to get Kreutzmacher 2. I was like, but we've not done Kreutzmacher 1. <laughs> you know, the very fundamental kind of core of my world was shattering, you know. Um, but yeah, and I think what I really enjoyed with with that sort of like, as I say, permission to, to, to do that, was then thinking, well, I've got these skills. I can do these things. And then, you know, do you, you want, ideally, I suppose, you want your technique to be above what you, you know, like a crane. You don't want a crane to be, lift, to be reaching up for anything because kind of gravity doesn't really work like that. You kind of want to be above it so you can pick anything up. And I, I thought, well, if I want to be able to write music that doesn't already exist, I'd probably need to be better than what currently exists in a sort of performative way or have an imagination that goes beyond what I'm currently learning because otherwise it'll just, it'll stay at that exact level, you know, because you can only do what you 
can do kind of thing. And I found that a really sort of inspiring provocation to, to actually, interestingly, to, to improve as a player. Because um, I'd sort of reached a point where I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't know that I, I think I'd sort of not, I'd started to not really feel like Beethoven was, or, or whoever, not, not picking on Beethoven. But um, I think I'd sort of reached a point where I was struggling to join the dots between what I loved about music and the kind of relevance of a lot of the music that I was playing or the connection that a lot of that music had and seeing I think, you know, again, with, with more uh, sort of years on the clock, looking back on it, I think, you know, yeah, 14, 15, it's difficult to equate something that's not objectively popular with something that is important or something that is valued and, and valid. I think when you're 14 doing Beethoven, you think, oh, but my friends don't like that. You think, well, why not? They still like music. You, know, you, you never meet someone who doesn't like music. When you never meet someone who's glad they gave up playing their instrument yeah, either. Yeah, everyone has an element of regret. And the kind of punchline of, oh, you're lucky to have a hobby for a job. But no, I, I, it's, it's a sort of interesting issue. And I, I think, truthfully, I think if I hadn't met Phil when I was 13 or whatever it was, I'd probably be looking to do something else. And you mentioned about transferable skills, and I, I wondered if that, that, that sense of, not, not, the, not the, the permission that we were talking about, but the, the, the rigour mm. that even though you might not necessarily have conformed classically to that, that in a sense is a transferable skill just in terms of preparation. And do you feel like that has stood you in good stead, that just... No, knowing, being within your means, for example, technically, yeah. you know, making, raising your means in order to achieve something more. Do you feel like that, these things, that there's something in the back of your mind that informs the way you work now? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that I see and really believe with music and, you know, music education is, you know, so I, I did maths, I did geography, I did all these sort of core subjects that, that have day-to-day -day basically no bearing on my life. Um, but, you know, I also did sport and rugby and things like that. The general point of it is I'm never going to be called up to play rugby for Scotland. Um, but I understand the value of playing in a team and the exercise leads to being healthy and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I, I don't understand why people don't make a bigger point that the, the greatest life skill of having children learning music is not to flood the world with people playing barrier cello sonatas or like Paganini caprices. It's like the transferable skill of music is listening. You know, having people who can sit and listen yeah. and understand that they don't have to be singing the tune to be absolutely equal. They don't need to be shouting. They, you know, the yes. 17th desk of the second violins is just as important as the first desk of the violas you know it's that is the thing that I think gets missed in the kind of politics rage of stem subjects mm -hmm. you know but um, anyway, uh, and yeah. you mentioned you mentioned Phil Shepard and and that is that when you felt you had license to start really getting into composing when he said well if it doesn't exist and you want to do it well get yeah, on with it and what it actually did is it opened up a whole host of other 
you know, in inverted commas, contemporary music. So Britain being the kind of gateway yeah. drug to that, the Britain cello suites. And then that was the sort of pivot into extended techniques. And that I found really interesting. And, you know, using the, the cello as a sort of synthesizer or impersonator of other things, which, you know, Britain does so beautifully and sort of effortlessly well. Um, yeah, and then fi finding all this amazing solo cello repertoire to create, you know, what is effectively a monophonic instrument into this huge chordal mass. I, th I found that really eye-opening and that definitely kind of kept my interest alive. Uh, in terms of your, your process, let's talking specifically about composing without picture, I don't know whether you'd call that contemporary classical music or... Mm. But I, I sense that you conceive your writing in in terms of a project rather than necessarily, I may be completely wrong, but maybe rather than just I'm going to write a sonata now, I feel like you you conceive it with a bigger album length arc. Yeah, I, I really love a deadline. Like I love a deadline. It's absolutely my favourite thing in the world. Um, you know, given a blank piece of paper and an infinite amount of time, I will do nothing. I mean, I'll come in and I'll prod at things but I will achieve very little. Um, and I absolutely love... Um, yeah, I just love a deadline. So. I have to say, of, so far, of every composer I've interviewed, that is that comes up every time. Does it? Absolutely every time. It whether it's David, story. Arnold or John Powell, even Erilyn Warren, like once they just need the deadline. And they can faff around and yeah. pair all their socks and do their accounts. But, you know, they need something to, yeah. to get them to do it what, what do you think that is a personality sort of trait why is it follow composers around I, maybe I it follows know. us all i don't know i mean and every every project i know there's a famous hands quote where he says you know every time he starts a film he sort of sits at the computer and thinks do i remember how to do this and every time i start a project you sit down and you're like i'm this one's going to be different i'm going to write this as it comes i'm not going to wait i'm not going to uh, and I, I explicitly said that to my wife, this thing I'm trying to finish at the moment, which we're recording on Sunday, has to go to print today. 2pm is my absolute latest cut-off. I have not finished it. Um, I'm very confident that I will finish it. But, um, yeah, it just sort of... I think there's something about the focus of a, a finishing line. You know, it's a, it's a bit like, you know, you think of Forrest Gump just just running... Like, well, that's not real, yeah. you know. But a marathon, like that, you've got a goal, yeah. you know. You think, oh, the 100-meter sprint, okay, there's a finish line, there's a start and there's a finish. Yeah. You can achieve that. Um, I love the idea of the kind of art for, I don't mean art for art's sake in a dismissive way, but I love the, the notion of people writing in that kind of romantic era, like, oh, you know, words with, like, ode to a cloud or whatever. Um, but I think, I think somewhere along the line we've got very confused like think how much music Bach wrote how much music Mozart wrote like it's craft and it's a deadline and it's a constant rolling commission well I mean Bach particularly had his godly you know, deadlines didn't godly he? deadlines I mean, or the prince of this or the king of that and you know you had it was it was production line I'm not I'm not dismissing it it's just the reality of the world. That, that might be a good time to talk about Bach, actually. I was thinking Bach recomposed. Is, it, is that what really got you noticed as, a, as an artist? Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it came about... I, I had been doing my own records for a number of years before that. And 
then I did a, a computer game which had 12 hours of music. It was absolutely brutal. And once that was done, I thought, right, I'm just going to do something completely for myself. And I wrote uh, two EPs of string quartets, and I thought, I'm going to do them the way I want to do them. I'm going to do them. You know, it's going to be very selfish, and that's what it's going to be. And um, and they they did really well, and they, they sold really well. They got licensed really well. And then I got a call from the, uh, an A&R guy at Deutsche Grammophon, and he said, oh, look, next year it's going to be five years from... Max is recomposed for the Vivaldi recomposed. Um, would you be like, we really like your quartets. We like the kind of sound world of them. Would you be interested in doing a recomposed? And, and if so, what would you want to do? And he said, well, yeah, that could be quite interesting, quite good fun. Cello, we've got a lot of good repertoire and stuff. And, you know, sort of ums and ahs between what you would do. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the Bach suites have this bizarre placement in, in the sort of enviable cello repertoire where, you know, they're the sort of earliest complete works for the cello as we now know it, and they're still the kind of pinnacle, you know, so there's a whole world of music in between them, but really it's the sort of the alpha and the omega, it's sort of the, the bookends, technically as well as just compositionally and, and things. Um, yeah, and, and so that was a an amazing project, it was an amazing process. And did you find it daunting taking on the, a, a god of music? Um, you, you, can't, you couldn't have picked a bigger I know, figure. I, I don't think daunting, not to sound arrogant, you know, the, the beauty of picking the kind of the pinnacle, the, the peak of it, is any new recording of the cello suite gets ripped to shreds. No one comes out with a good review. You do them at your own peril. And so you're just like, well, look, it's not, I'm not saying I'm writing it better, but in the same way that a cellist performing them is having a, a, a sort of spin interpretation on them. But the idea here was to do a kind of interpretation as a composer and a cellist having performed them and, and you know, knowing them. Um, and, you know, they, yeah, it continues to be popular and does its thing. And it's, um, I'm really proud of it. And it's it's not something it's something I would recommend anyone do. I mean, you you, you sit there and you, you try things out, and you not that you would want to shake the Bach DNA at all, but what you realise is that you you can't if you want to. Even the most left field of the of the movements that I've done still have this kind of innate Bachness, this innate structure that that can't really you can't shake. And it, it's really quite astonishing. And, and I know from having worked with you on a few things uh, that you're technologically very conscious and aware. How important is the technology to your process? Oh, it's, it's massively important. Um, I could actually show you, I mean, for the, for the listener at home, uh, I'm showing Tom a drawing. This is uh, of this piece I'm trying to finish which for Sunday. And this is basically the only compositional note that I have. It's a, a room drawing of how it's going to be set up right. and the implication of where the microphones are going to be. Uh, we're recording it direct to Atmos. It's for strings and choir and how that informs the voice leading and the part writing. But, you know, I've always been interested in that, in the, in that more instrumentalists aren't 
fussy bastards about this. We spend our lives with one instrument, maybe you get an upgrade at student and another one when you, you know, a bit older. But you spend your life with, say, three or four, you know, a small number of instruments, kind of wrangling that into being your identity and your sound, your personality. And it's your instrument to communicate with. And I don't understand why people, you know, right up and down the spectrum, you know, people with Strads, Guarneri's, whatever, then, like, over to you. You're like, but it's your sound. Why would you not have an opinion? Like, you just have to remember one name or one model. You're like, oh, you particularly like the sound of a, you know, U87 or a 251 or a whatever, a pair of Royers. Yeah, yeah. four metres back and pointing at the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has an opinion, and if they don't, it's because they've not listened to it. Yeah. But they've spent their life trying to control that instrument, to, to use it to communicate and create sound. They should have an opinion about it. Yes. And it's always, and that, I think that's you know, something we certainly yeah. connected over, is, is this sort of interest. And they're fun, and it's cool. And, but, you, you know, it makes a difference. It makes a massive difference, absolutely. And, and as I say, you know, I'm recording this Atmos Christmas Carol on Sunday, yeah. um, and before I'd written a note of it, had already spoken with the engineer I work with and said, "Okay, we're doing this. It's for choir and strings. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to try this. I'd like to try that. I'd like something flown up in the ceiling." Blah blah blah. It's. Are you recording it in the hall? No, we're doing it Abbey Road. Actually, we're doing okay, it Abbey so, Road One. So in a big, in a big, big space. Room. Yeah. Big big room and setting up a choir, 16-piece choir, fully in the round, filling out the, the depth of the room. So it's going to be a vast uh, yeah. sound, um, Yeah, which I'm really excited about. And do you think, just oh, you mentioned control, do you think there's ever a time when the machines slightly run the process and actually you need to, you need to, there's a sort of balance between the tech and the composition and does it ever sway too far to, you know, can you get can you go down a rabbit hole with it? I suppose. Is what Are I'm you saying. meaning in a kind of plug-in preset sort of world? Or yeah, or just that you it, it it alters so much the way that you're you're writing that you're you're sort of not quite yourself anymore, and you need to remind yeah. yourself you know, how, I don't how it all know. works. I mean, I did for a little while. I had a, a phase. Um, I used to do a lot of like a lot of remote recording for other people. Yes. I would always record into the software that they were writing in because no one makes a mistake in their own mm -hmm. writing session. Everyone makes a mistake when they export it, as, yes. as we all know. And, love. Um, and from that, I then started thinking, well, I, I would basically jump ship between every project. So I'd, I would write a film in Logic and then I would jump and do a ballet in Cubase or I'd yeah. do something in Digital Performer. And, and the, the value of that initially was that I never sort of locked down muscle memory and you don't default to doing it. It's like, oh, I know that, that's this finger shortcut to, to yeah. reverse something, move it three bars back and add a you know, hi-hat or a yeah. doof to the thing. Um, but I, I then sort of stopped, stopped yo-yoing between them just at yeah. a point where I got a bit busier. But you mentioned remote recording then. and I, 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 For me, it's opened a door, yeah. not just into working but actually a whole new creative process is that have you found that from, yeah and you've learned from having done it for other people i suppose hugely hugely 
because you know a lot of the people I would record for was on you know hundred million dollar films I'm not going to be asked to score a hundred million dollar film you know and so being involved in that process and being you know seeing how that's pieced together and and stuff the experience is is incredible and there's also a kind of risk threshold that's changed when you're given effectively free reign it's like oh do do this we we need I did a lot of electric cello on, on a lot of films and it's like oh well we just want some kind of unit of scary electric cello noises have at it yeah. and and there's a real freedom when it's someone else's neck on the line you know and you really I would find myself going far further than I probably would have done if I had been writing it and I suppose that's the value in of outsourcing that kind of stuff yeah. um, but I'm interested in your point I, I think I've never really been worried that my technology, whether it's most of it's sort of kind of old-fashioned stuff that I, I have, it's you know, reverbs and delays and microphones and stuff, harmonizers. And I, rather than being kind of feel like I'm being constrained by it, I think you you can look at it that you're being inspired by it. So I, you know, will happily. I think maybe this is where the, the deadline thing comes from. You can spend days, weeks, months prodding at something which doesn't go anywhere, seemingly. But then when you get to the 11th hour, you're like, ah, yeah, at the back of my mind, I did this thing, and it was a fun, weird little noise from a weird little synth, and it went into this big reverb. What did I do with that? Um, And, you know, on the surface, it can look like procrastination or, or whatever, but I think it's just as valid as, you know, going down to the V&A or going to the Tate and having a day in the art galleries. It's just a different kind of kind of forward, forward, it's like advancing yourself some kind of yeah. inspiration. I, I remember being shown around, and you, you'll, you'll know Abbey Road Studio too well. I don't know if you ever went into the, as you go in at the very far end, there's another set of double doors, which is a fire exit. But if you go through that and to the right, there was the old echo chamber, which is a room about the size that we're in now, probably, I don't know, you know, seven or eight meters long, three or four meters wide, at which one end was placed the speakers yeah. coming out from the desk with whatever they wanted to add reverb to yes. and, and a pair of mics at the other end, and they yeah. would change the distance between the speakers and the mics. And I, I remember going there just thinking how many amazing records been, have been created yeah. by someone coming in here and going, oh my God, I'm going to have some real fun with this toy yeah. today. And yeah. the, the, it really does open up. Yeah. Even something as, as sort of, not, I was going to say crude, it's such a imagine, base, simple, imaginative idea yeah. to do that. But it's, I suppose it's very analogue compared to what but, we're but using you know, nowadays. Thinking it, of it in a less, not that you're being critical of it, but less in a less, um, you know, removing the word technology from, from mm. it because it's, kind of, it's, a, it's an easy yes. thing, especially with our kind of classical music backgrounds. Um, disregarding the fact that the violin is a very evolved piece of technology that yeah. does you, allows you to do something that is otherwise yeah. not possible. Um. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You play differently in a church than yeah. the way you play in a room like this. So true. You know, you play differently in the hall here. At you, should. <laughs> you should. You should play differently, quite right, than, than Abbey Road 2. Yes. I've never felt comfortable playing in Abbey Road 2, you know, because it's such a big room, but it doesn't give anything back. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, Studio One or the hall here, you just touch the instrument and you, you do, you find yourself like people warm up differently. Yeah, yeah. You know, people enjoy playing and it's like, boom, and you yeah. get this bloom to the sound, you know, it just... Well, actually, I think this is something lovely about practising in a really, really brutal dry room. Yeah. And knowing that you're going to have to do your concert or record your session somewhere yeah. that is massively complimentary. And, and, and so if you can get it sounding decent in that brutal yeah. dry acoustic, it's, you know, it's going to sound with all the added love of, of, of the space. But yeah, the, the, all those rooms are so different. And I remember used to being very scared of playing in Angel 3, the upstairs studio oh, at Angel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until I worked out how to do it and just not having... I mean, effectively, just not using very much pressure at all. Yeah. And often in those situations where you're getting nothing back from the room, the tendency is to press a bit harder because yeah. you want more yeah. to come out. And it and it's and it's it's a complete sort of negative yeah. feedback loop, really. Yeah, I think with the, you know, how people play and, and how you respond to a room, it's it comes back to you know. It's so important when when you're writing. I think you know, knowing where you're going to do it. And thinking, oh well, if I do, if I if I'm going to be in this big room, then I can do the following things because the confidence level will be there for this to work. You know, you do this in a small room, you've got much more control. Fine, you can isolate it. Fine, but the players won't play it in the same way. So true. You know, the confidence level will be far lower. You know, and the number of times we've been in Studio One here here at Air. And someone's written a line for artificial harmonics. Yeah. Gone. Brutal. Complete yeah. waste of time. Do it in the hall. One take wonder. Yeah. Because you can sit and just, it doesn't, the scuff at the beginning doesn't matter, but it puts you off when you hear it in a small room. Yeah, yeah. And everyone bottles it, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Studio One here is, I think it's great, but you definitely know, need to know. You need to know it. How, how, how yeah. to do it. And actually, just talking about the, the, the hall here, we're sitting in air studios, I should say. The hall here, I've been in to listen to, Back desk harmonics, which I should explain to people who are listening, are when you put high stuff right at the back of the orchestra to get some perspective. Um, and I've been in to listen to just a stem of those, which is two people at one side and two people at the other, and only listening, monitoring from the from the tree in the centre of the room. And they sound like they are right yeah. next to you. It's an it's an extraordinary room that you need to do so little, and you get you get so yeah. much back. I sort of feel like every every session I do in a difficult room. Is just I'm going to get paid back when I when I go and just sit in there, you know. It's, yes. it's the, the balance is redressed. You know, yes, it's, it's a and really it's, special room. You know, you 
the players respond differently and I, I hope people write differently. You know, it certainly I think it it does make a huge difference if you're you know, and then you know, with the kind of remote recording thing there's a, a tendency to, you know, think that you could save money and have, say, one person and then get them to track it up. But I think there's a really interesting aesthetic difference. You know, the difference between having and it's something that we've done together, you know, yeah. tracking up a section of cellos or violins or violas, whatever it is. Um, but the aesthetic difference between six people playing once or one person playing six times is quite profound. You know, it's a bit glib when you say it quickly like that. Yeah, yeah. But actually, six people playing once means you've got one room, you've got one response. Six people playing, one person playing six times, you know, even the tiniest um, sort of coherence in vibrato ruins the illusion. And so people who know how to do it you know, it's it's this sort of, um, it's a real skill. Yeah, And absolutely. the kind of, the, the technique of performing for a, a concerto, you know, a lark ascending or a Shostakovich telegraph, whatever it is, is so different to really crafting and, and bringing that kind of musicality into the studio. And I think a lot of people look down on the studio performance and say, oh, you can just do another take, you can just do another take. Like, yeah, but I would defy anyone whose life is about making a sound in a 2,000-seat concert hall to come in to a studio and do, you know, it, it's, it's got to be met with an equal respect. And actually, what I have I've taken it to sort of another, um, through, through my interest in microphones and, and recording techniques, I actually have my cello set up as basically as a baroque cello so got a slightly higher bridge got um gut strings on it and and very low tension gut strings awful in concert halls doesn't project you know the concert halls now are built for big sound and a big projection and big kind of everything um whereas actually when you're in a studio the microphone is two feet two feet away it's nothing it's very close and if the sound is still on its kind of trajectory up, it sounds very thin, very brittle. So, you know, you think if where a, a cello microphone in a film session would be, it'd be like maybe an arm and a half's length away from the instrument. But if it's a modern setup instrument, the sound is still, you know, if you think about how a golf ball looks when you hit it, it's still kind of on the ground. It's still yet to rise. Whereas a, a gut-stringed instrument it looks more like a, a sandwich, like a flop shot. It kind of goes, vroom, and it blooms by the point that you're yes, yes. at the microphone. And it's just this very warm sound that, that does nothing 20 metres away, yeah. but sounds magical on the microphone. And, and you're still performing live, aren't you? You still take yes. Recomposed on tour? Yes, and, yes. And, and do you, I mean, you're going to be performing if you're touring in lots of different places. Yeah. And so you're adjusting every night, presumably. Is that, yeah. And that's, that's a mic'd... That Show is mic'd, actually, yeah, um, because we have synthesizers as well. There's yeah. a kind of whole kind of sound thing that goes with it. So do you take an engineer with you? I did, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was actually meant to do the last two shows of Recomposed uh, that got shifted because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so Recomposed came out in 2018, 2018 came out. Um, and I sort of toured it pretty solidly through 2018, 19 into 20. And then 
COVID. And then, but the last few shows were meant to happen in like May, I think of of then. Anyway, it was meant to do the last couple, Poland and Germany, um, last weekend. And so yes, it was going to be, you know, engineer and sound people and flight cases of gear and these groovy little special clip-on mics that go under the fingerboard and they're really good. all this stuff, but my passport was not released by the U.S. Embassy in time. Oh my God! So I wasn't able to travel. Oh no! So I sort of have this latent like I'm missing these two shows, you know, from the kind of tick list of so what completion. Happens? I'm sure they just get cancelled, right? You don't just yeah. You can't just send a debt for that, no. really, can you? So um, that got cancelled, which was a real shame. And but will you reschedule those? Do you think? I I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's because it was it was at a festival that was rescheduled. Oh, I see. So, um, yeah, it was a real shame. And I actually just got the passport back on, on Wednesday, so it was like a week late. Oh, no. So, hey-ho. But, um, yeah, it was a real shame. Uh, you, we touched on you playing on other people's movies, but let's, yeah. let's talk a bit about writing to picture and your process yeah. when you're doing that. Um, how, how, how do projects come to you? Do you, are you? do you get a call from a director? or? I mean, I think people would be interested to hear about yeah. that, that sort of the career side of the process yes. of how... How things arrive so, in your inbox. So, to be brutally honest, so my first film um, was directed by Alan Rickman, and I had written the music for a very small ballet in a theatre in um, Notting Hill, which doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Print Room, and it's now called the Coronet, which is in the old Coronet Cinema. But this was a beautiful dance piece and like the stage design was by Tom Dixon it was a big kind of starry thing that the choreographer had um, the choreographer had liked my music I had been performing a cello suite by Gabriel Prokofiev and that was choreographed by this guy and then he said oh I like your stuff as well would you like to do the music for my uh, for my ballet so I did that and then he at one of the preview nights um, there was a drinks reception and I was you know, halfway through a bottle of wine or whatever, and uh, and I got a tap on my shoulder, and I swear to God, this is like blow for blow true. Tap on my shoulder, and um, you know, Hans Gruber is standing there, and he says, "I'm doing a film. Would you like to do the music?" And and that was sort of that. We had a little chat, and then off he went, and I was like, "Well, I've got no way of following up on this. Like, you don't just sort of phone up Alan Rickman." Uh, and so I thought, well. I've really buggered that up. What do you do next? And uh, about two weeks later, I, I got a phone call and said, you never, you never got in touch. It was Alan Rickman. I was like, well, firstly, how did you get my phone number? Well, it's Alan Rickman. You know, Snape has his ways. And, um, <laughs> and he, uh, I was like, well, I, I have no way of reaching you. I went, oh, well, would you want to do the film? And, and it's sort of this sort of very dry... Uh, introduction into into it but it was the most astonishing experience because I had no credits and he had spent those last two weeks basically fighting the producers who had a list of people that they wanted or would approve to do it and he said no this is who's going to do it and fought 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 two weeks later basically he had had a lunch that day and uh, they had finally kind of given in and uh, he was phoning to say you've not expressed any interest in doing this. But it was the most astonishing experience because, you know, it was a very sort of big cast, like Kate Winslet and 
um, Helen McCrory, uh, Stanley Tucci, Alan, um, and and so on. It was a big kind of best of British kind of kind of thing. And uh, but when he got me involved, it was at the very end of the script stage, and he took me to one of everything in pre-production. Uh, I was on set a whole lot for that, and you know I spent a day with the prop department or a day with the costume department. Or, you know, saw every element of making a film and then post-production obviously and there was quite a lot of music on set uh, for choreography so I'd write music for the choreographer or go and perform some bits of cello music for the choreographer to, to do dance lessons with the, the actors and actresses and, um, the most astonishing experience but yeah so that came about through a ballet and then other films I mean that typically now things arrive in my inbox because um, my music's in the temp or they've, they want to license things. So I did a beautiful, another Kate Winslet film actually for Roger Michel. Um, the lovely late Roger Lo Michel. Lovely late Roger. Um, yeah, so they had some of Recomposed in the film, which was very quick because it had only come out, I would say, the month that they started editing. Maybe, maybe six weeks later, you know, six weeks before. Um, but the assistant editor had tempted in some recomposed. And um, actually, as it happens, the, the kind of small world of all these things, my studio next door neighbour is David Arnold. And David came in and he said, oh, I've just had someone phoning up about you. I was like, what in a kind of slightly weird, you know, David Arnold start to a sentence. And he was like, oh yeah, Roger Michelle's just phoned me. Um, and he's, he likes your music. And at the same time, I got an email from the post supervisor saying, oh, Roger would like to meet you. To it might be worth mentioning that, that David has worked on films many, for Roger, many Roger And theatre as well. Yeah. Um, I think we both played on a theatre piece did, for Roger. Yes, that's yeah. so true, yeah. Anyway, and so um, I went in to meet Roger and he said, oh yeah, we love this music. We'll, we'll keep it. We want to licence it but we'd like you to score it and kind of interweave you know, between, between them. And so that's sort of the common thread, really. Is, uh, or, or it's just straight licensing. So you know, there's a wonderful Italian director called Paolo Sorrentino who, who uses a lot of my music in his films or, or TV shows or fashion things. Um, and they, he just straight licenses them. And, and that's just how that goes. And then I guess cuts his picture to, 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 the, to, music. The, to the music. Yeah. Lot of luxury. Yeah. The only film I've ever worked on where that happened was Ennio Morricone. Okay. And he came over and we did wow. huge long takes of this thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. No patching at all. And then he just potted off and that was it. Wow. And knowing that they were all, the, they were all slightly were. different and yeah. that someone was just going to cut it. So, and it was a luxury not extended to many composers. Is no. what I'm, the point I'm Yeah, making. and especially in the kind of sync world. So, so I had some sync, so starting with the quartets of mine. Bach recomposed really kicked sync up into a big whole other thing. And, you know, you get some requests for like, yeah, we want to edit it like this and this and this. And you're like just get someone to write something. You know, why would you spend all this money licensing something that you just want to cut up into something that is incoherent? But for the most part, actually, they they do sort of retain the integrity of the piece. And it's I find it fascinating seeing how people, especially with licensing, create something based on 
something of mine. You know, I find that really exciting. And tell me, what, when a, when a director comes to you with a with a movie, what what's the first thing you do? What's the, when you get your brief? Do you have a, a set sort of rigorous process of of an order of things, or do you just sort of go for a nice long walk and think about? what it might mean or yeah that's a good question I'm, I'm doing a film at the moment where I'm trying to think what the the first the, the first interactions were actually through Zoom obviously in the newfound world that we find ourselves um, and there was no temp so that was quite unusual they were cutting it kind of dry um, and actually, he asked me, he told me the subject matter, and he said, I would like you to write, could you write me some pieces of music? Not, and, and actually, one of them has ended up in the, in the, in the film, which is brilliant and lovely. Um, and it, it was, I think it was a great idea, because you know, rather than us being at cross-purposes, I was coming to the project quite cold, and he obviously had been on it for a couple of years, um, but by having new music to talk about, something that I could talk more knowledgeably about, we we started to establish a very good language that's not kind of musical. You know, it's that you're always you're always looking for that kind of Babelfish. You're looking for that translation, that way in. You know, and again, with um, Roger was was unusually articulate with yes. music, where Alan was not. Yeah, and I remember there was one cue in in that film where I spent weeks trying to unpick he, he said he wanted it fast, he wanted the music faster so I wrote a faster cue This is a little chaos A little right? chaos. Yeah. And so I wrote a piece that was faster metrically faster I said no, no and that was it, man of very few words um, and it took me weeks and weeks and weeks and I realised he actually wanted it harmonically faster so he, he didn't want the notes he wanted more movement inside the music, not just the frantic, frenetic, like semi yeah, yeah. or whatever. And that was a big lesson in actually, you know, finding ways of asking the right questions or unpicking the, the questions or, or the, the requests that you're sent. Because often you're sent, it's all very well intended and no one's wanting to waste anyone's time, I've, I have found, I hope. Um, it, it's easy to misconstrue that though, isn't it? Sometimes? Very, very yeah. easy. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so on this, this film I'm doing at the minute, uh, the editor is very musical, very, very musical. He's, he's doing some brilliant sort of music edits, which is very helpful and also quite confusing. When you watch something back, you're like, I don't hear the edit. It works better than what I sent, but what did you do? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, I think my first port of call is you try to establish a kind of common language and this this thing at the moment was a brilliant was a I know a lot of people do this with writing suites or writing you know they read the script and write a, a series of pieces but you know I think in many respects that can that can really work if it works for the film um, but it's also I think not forgetting that the job in that respect is to write music to, for picture you know it's not abstract music it's not you know music with the kind of luxury to kind of contemplate the you know the impact of sub-saharan african debt it's not it's not completely abstract or kind of your own choice it is music at the service of the film and of the story and of the picture and i 
does often run uncomfortably with me when when you hear composers in the in the press junket talking about oh I read the script and I wrote the music I think yeah but but then what's the, the music's not res- you know it's it's like well, you've got these actors on screen emoting and and I get it I I I understand that it's it can be a thing I just I think sometimes it it comes off as a bit kind of highfalutin and, and then you think it's going to be it's going to be music edited within an inch of yeah. its life so ultimately someone has done the job of writing the music to picture yeah of of getting the music to picture and i i would want to use that as a creative and sort of emotive tool rather than you know writing abstract blah yeah. and then someone else doing that because to me that's the that's the job. Yeah, when, when I hear a composer say, yeah, I read the scripts and I just wrote the score, I think my first reaction is usually, no, you didn't. Yeah, um, well. Right. Even if you wrote a few things, by the time that movie comes out. It's been chopped. And, and you know, think of, think of your, you know, all of our experiences in, in studios on films, and you, it's always telling whose voice you hear more of on the talkback. Indeed, yeah. And if it's a, a charming music editor talking and the queue is at 60 BPM, my suspicion is always... This is maybe not to picture. I, I can't think of a single cue I've ever written that has an even tempo. Yeah. It's always like 60.135 or 70.387, whatever. It's something very specific. And, um, but, you know, everyone's different. And, like, maybe the director wants that. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. And they wanted music going into shooting and they wanted stuff like that. But I think it's becoming quite a trendy kind of go-to positions like oh well there are composers who you know fools who kind of do cues and revisions and like version what am I looking at version 5.3 or 5.27 or and then there's the, the kind of the pure artist who conceives the whole thing up front and you're like well yeah the, the pure artist who conceives the thing all up front it's still going to be edited yeah. it is always going to be you know, unless you're Ennio Morricone but it, it's always going to be worked to picture we've worked for harry gregson williams for years and he uh, we i think it was prince of persia we did a queue that was version 147 yeah. you know and and by which time harry was was pretty fed up with it i think yeah. um, with all the love in the world you know by the time you've reversioned it that many times yeah you know i mean and, and this is this is a seriously experienced yeah, yeah. Know, top of the game film composer yeah. who's 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 used to Changes, but I think you know it does. It does get extra. Sounds like a new yeah. level of new territory. Where, where, is, are there ever times? I just wonder, if, <laughs> not to tempt fate, but do you? Are there ever times when you just haven't got a clue when you're completely blocked? And yes. in which case, obviously you've got the deadline. That's quite good medicine. Yes. But also, is there something you do to get over that? Do you? So when it's my own music, um, there's a, a friend of my parents who's an author who has this lovely expression that there's no such thing as writer's block you either have a story to tell or you don't and if you don't you should go off and yeah. do something until you've got a story to tell and I've always thought that's really yeah I mean it's a little bit sort of simplistic but it's it's lovely and it's a, it's very true like you either have a piece of music to write you are either inspired by the scene yeah or you're not Alan Garner has just won the Whitbread in his 80s I think um, was asked on the Today programme a couple of weeks ago, what, you know, what would, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? And he said, um, get a page of A4, fill it with words, turn it over, 
fill that with words. And when you've run out of words, stop. <laughs> That's yeah. Just like, just do it. Yeah. Something will happen. Yeah. You might edit it, you might throw it away, but you've, you've done something. Yes. I mean, I... So there's a cue... It's not, nothing like Harry's 100 and whatever. <laughs> but there's a cue that I, in version one of this cue, four cuts of the picture back, Right. I was very proud of. 1M4. Yeah. It's the pinnacle of my compositional life. Very proud of it. Um, everything changed, obviously. Blah, 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 blah. Need to get lock cut, allegedly, is, is going out today, uh, tonight. And I need to get that out the door as well. And I was prodding away at that. I was like, oh. Just... On one side, I was thinking, oh, this is about conforming. And conforming is when you have a piece of music that is basically approved, but they've changed the picture and you just need to move a few elements around right. and maybe speed up or slow down. And there's some sophisticated software that helps you do that in a number of ways that's quite nifty. Um, but ultimately, you try, you know, if, if there's a, a scene where the piano comes in when you see Bob's face and you just need to move the piano by, you know, however many milliseconds or frames or whatever, you just change the tempo and you move it, it's all fine, it all works. This was quite a significant structural rethink, except they liked the music. And I, I was moved to say to the editor the other day on a, on a call, like, you know, unfortunately, due to the sequential nature of time, you've taken a minute out of this scene. Yeah. The music is going to be a minute shorter. Which minute are we going to lose? Because, you know, we cut it from here, we pull this bit up, but that's the, the, the minute that is missing isn't actually missing, it's now... It's just they've changed the sequence of yeah, events. Yeah. And overall, the scene is a minute shorter, but it's not one coherent minute that is removed. Yeah. And I, I just... And it was a, an interesting problem. I, I like the problem-solving element of, of film composition. Yeah. But I was like, I really, I can't see the wood for the trees in this. Like, I know there's a big kind of... that's meant to happen on that scene. Yeah. But I can't seem to prepare it and justify it. A bit like a modulation, you know, yeah. you, you don't just suddenly change key, you kind of prepare it, and there, there are musical ways of preparing the listener for something that's about to happen. And uh, I cannot see how I'm gonna, and I still can't see You still can't I'm, see. Um, so I'm, I'm doing something else. Yeah, <laughs> do, do some other <laughs> stuff for a bit. <laughs> now look, I, well, you've given me so much of your time. I, just, my last question is. This is, this is the best procrastination. <laughs> this is it. I'm helping you procrastinate. <laughs> I'm gonna I, if I don't get a credit on this movie. Co-procrastinator, executive procrastinator. Just I like to ask this of, of everyone really, but if you, let's go back and pretend you're you know young, a young cellist in Edinburgh. What what advice would you give yourself then? that you have... What advice would you give a 12-year-old self is, is what I'm trying to ask. Follow your interests. Like, it doesn't matter if you're playing Beethoven, Bob Marley, The Beatle, it doesn't matter. If you're interested in doing it, I think the, tra you know, the cello, the violin, the guitar, they're totally transferable. Um, if you're interested in... I think the thing I've learned now is nothing, nothing replaces, like, curiosity and passion for, for what you're doing. And if you're not interested in opening up one M4, 
there's a problem there. Having a problem with it is a different thing. I want to do it. I just don't quite know what to do. But um, at the end of the day, I still love coming in and prodding away at these seemingly insurmountable problems. And I think the advice to myself or to, to a four-year-old, 12-year-old is the kind of the stigma or the dogma of, um, you know, what you should be playing is bollocks. You know, you should be playing music you love. Because I don't really know that how, how else to justify what, it. What is the point if yeah. you don't love it? If you don't love the music you're playing, play the music you love. And, and if you find, you know, okay, there might not be the same technical challenge, but there are ways of technically challenging yourself if that's what you want to do. But I think it's, the most important thing is, you know, if you're playing other people's music, it's important you love it. And if you're writing your own music, it's important you love it. Yeah, yeah. Play the music you love. What a lovely yeah. way to end. Peter, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for coming. That was a lovely Peter Gregson. His album is out now, Quartets 2 and 3, on all major platforms. And there's a link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And please do tune in again soon for more of the same. Take care. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.